Yep. All right, everybody. We are live back with another episode of Stories from a Mountain Town. Today with me, I have Kevin Grange, author of Wild Rescues, um, a book about all these crazy rescues and and um, adventures, being an EMT in Grand Teton National Park, Yellowstone, and Yosemite. And um, before I butcher anything else about the book, Kevin, um, say a little bit about yourself. Say who you are, where you're from, all that good stuff. Sure. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me on the show. Super uh, pumped to be here. I grew up in New Hampshire, a small town called Exeter, and uh, basically made my way out west for college and uh, eventually went to paramedic school and was hired by the National Park Service. Uh, Started at Yellowstone and then went to Yosemite and then came back to work in Grand Teton. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition, I also am full-time with Jackson Hole Fire EMS. Mm-hmm. And then I do some uh, writing on the side. Yeah, this book and then people, I've been telling, I've been raving about this book because this book is so good. It's like I didn't like when you when you first messaged me. Um, so so audience, he Kevin just messages the podcast Instagram account saying, "Hey, can I come on and talk about the book I just uh, published?" And I looked at it, I was like, "Ah, well, that looks fucking sick." I'm not sure. I'm not like a, I'm not in the medical field, so I don't know how how much I would like all these rescues, but. The way you write about them, it's so easy to digest and so easy because I know some of the areas you talk about, it makes it so easy for me to picture the stories you're talking about. Like I've been to, you know, Old Faithful where you were stationed in Yellowstone. I've been to these places in Grand Teton where you had to do go do rescues. And and I don't know if I'm giving away the end of the book because it's not really like a story. It's like memoirs, right? So, but the, the, the epilogue was such a little Easter egg in here. You were part of the Saddle Butte Fire, like, firefighters. Yes, exactly. Um, with Jackson Hole Fire, we are all hazards agency. So yeah. we do EMS, we do structure fire, we do wildland fire, we do tactical EMS, uh, hazardous material. Yeah. And uh, with the book, I kind of wanted to show the, the breadth of what we do as, you know, professionals and... I didn't have a wildfire and I was thinking of a good way to end this, you know, end the book. And then yeah. as I was writing it, you know, Saddle Butte happened and yeah. it was just this crazy day in Jackson and, um, <clears throat> you know, a lot was very uncertain and I don't think the public knows everything that went on on Saddle Butte. Um, so I wanted to share that in the story. Yeah. And I don't know if you know this, but I lived on Saddle Butte during the fire. So I, I was not. one of the, I was one of those that got evacuated. Oh, okay. Yeah. So thank you from everybody up there for saving our neighborhood sure. at the time. Yeah. Well, that's why I was so, I, I, I saw it when I turned the page and it was like, what is the title page? I'll flip to it here. Uh, it's the epilogue there. Yeah. But this title page, it says like, not wildfire, but like eventually you get in here and you says like, you say like, Something about a fire that started by the Virginian by a Mylar balloon. I was like, "Holy shit! That's the that's the Saddle Butte fire." Like this guy sa- helped to save my house. <laughs> well, yeah, and the thing I realized about that fire was how windy that road is to get to the top of that butte. Yeah, and I only say that because the engine we were taking up there, we had to do three and four point turns. Yeah, around the corners, which is fine going up, but then when you have to do an emergency evacuation to get out of there, yeah it's really hard to sort of, all right, we're going to stop this urgent evacuation, fleeing the fire to do these three and four point turns around mm-hmm. the corner. And then 
the funny thing with that is you always want to have a backer with the engine because you don't want to hit anything. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I don't really want to ask my coworker to get outside, you know, as we're fleeing this wildland fire to back me up and yeah. make these three and four point turns. Yeah. But luckily we were able to get off the butte, you know, before no one was hurt. So, yeah. Yeah. That was intense. Have you, have you heard any episodes um, of this where I talk about like my side of that, of the fire, like my experience of it? I haven't heard that one. No. So we were, Taylor and I were at, um, whole grocer, just grocery shopping and, um, we come out the door and the hill, that hillside is on fire above the Virginian. And she's like, which hill is that? And I'm like, our hill. And we're sure. like, shit. So we try to drive. Like I'm, I'm definitely speeding. Try to go towards the entrance by inversion yoga, yoga there. But we didn't even get anywhere near it because it was all blocked off and traffic and everything. I couldn't even get to anybody to say like, Hey, I live up there. I got to get up there. So I rip back around to the Amangani road and just like go as fast as possible up the road to where the, the roads get really close. Our our lot was one of the ones that like, you could see it from the Amangani road. Okay. So we get up to there to that curve, book it across our neighbor's yard, get to our stuff because our dogs were at home. So we get up there and um, ran into Brad Boner of the Jackson Hole News and Guide. Yeah, the photographer. Yeah. So he was taking pictures and he's like, hey, do you guys need help? And we're like, yes, <laughs> come help us carry our shit. So thankfully Brad was there and helped us carry some stuff. But we're like, you know, grabbing everything. And then Taylor's able to get her car and get out of there. You, you were letting people go down. Um, and then I just got the boys back in the in the truck and got out of there. And then we watched the rest of the hill burn from still west because the owners of that lived up there at the time. So they're like, they texted the neighborhood, like, come on over. We can watch it, drink beers and watch it from the, they have like a back porch where they have apartments. And we like watched it from there. Sure. And we just like watched it wrap around. And it was like, holy shit. Yeah, it was a surreal day, and um, we actually, which I detail in the book, um, my crew kind of got, you know, burnt over with the fire. Yeah. Um, luckily, we were in the dirt pit of a new home being built, Yeah. so we didn't catch the flames. We caught the brunt of the smoke and the heat, um, but the thing, the reason that it burnt so fast was because you have that shrub and sagebrush, Yeah. but that's also the reason that the houses were mainly saved, because it it came through so fast due to that fuel yeah. um, that it didn't have time to kind of catch houses on fire just because it was here and there, you know, just so quickly through the neighborhoods. Yeah. It's not so, any like solid timber or like. Right. So catching. yeah, it's just interesting that the thing that caused the big fire was actually also the thing that saved the houses, which yeah. was the sagebrush. Yeah. You know? So that's the reason we couldn't catch it with the wind, but that's mm -hmm. also the reason why, a lot of the homes weren't lost. Um, if it was bigger fuel like trees, you would have a longer burn time and you know, the houses might not have had the same outcome. Yeah. But yeah, it was were, a crazy day. Were you, were you on the, um, what side is it? The east side of the butte, like near the road that comes up from aversion yoga. Um, there's pine trees over on that side. And we were watching as it came around that side of the hill it would hit the pine trees and they would go up, but there's no houses on that, or, uh, on that where it was, but they would like basically explode. Like it was like a column of fire would go up from these pine trees getting hit by it. It was insane. Yeah. We were at the top of the butte protecting these homes and, mm -hmm. um, the butte kind of funneled up right there. Yeah. And so we didn't have eyes on the fire. And so with structure protection, you expect kind of a creeping, fire which mm -hmm. you can put out you know and that's what we expected but then all of a sudden kind of coming over the top of the butte was a huge flaming front you mm -hmm. know with flames like 10 to 12 feet 
So, um, you know, situations change and the wind picks up in the afternoon. And, um, so it was definitely out of control for a while there. Yeah. Yeah. The way the, uh, I guess the fire chief would, um, kind of debrief us every day. We'd have a little meeting at the station and be be like, here's where we're at. Like, you know, no houses lost. Like we're thinking about getting you back into the house tomorrow. Um, but the way the way you looked, they that he spoke to us about it, and the way you look at it as determining if it's safe or not is like a whole different um, way to think about things that I never I've never experienced. Because like in Minnesota, there's some wildfires way up in like the Boundary Waters area, sure. but that's like really wild territory. But nowhere where anybody lives is there any wildfires. So like to have to and that, that the Saddle Butte fire was actually the second fire that summer on kind of what that that stretch of butte is right the one by the art museum yeah exactly the wildlife art museum yep that one happened too and we were like shit is this gonna hit our house too so it happened again and it was like you know two in one summer we're having to deal with potentially our house burning down it was pretty crazy for sure yeah um so it's just a good reminder to homeowners to have sort of that idea of like defensible space around your house. Yeah. And then also like you guys seem to know what you would take if it happened. So it's just good for homeowners. <laughs> we did not. Oh, okay. We, well, dude, I take was the dogs. Yeah. We got, we got the dogs and then like, I got all like my camera gear and like computers and stuff. Tay got right. like her nurse stuff, got some scrubs and stuff. Cause she had to actually had to work like that next night. Um, sure. But I was like, uh, let's see valuables. I was like, golf golf clubs there you go uh that's those are expensive golf clubs and then it was like these random other things i was like determined to, them to be expensive and i didn't want them to burn and it was like so we did not have a plan okay well <laughs> it was hectic because we because it was we could see the smoke so we weren't sure did that mean it was going to be on us in five minutes or ever right we didn't know that timing because sure we we're just on our own so we we're like shit we we're like literally running around i videoed the whole house you know for like insurance purposes in case it did go down like for we didn't own it but for our landlord to be like all right here's all stuff for our rental our renter's insurance like right that's where I, that's where my head was at like yeah this house could be gone so let's get the renter's insurance going for sure yeah in the summers we have this idea with you know teton county emergency management of you know ready set go and it's just just to have in the back of yeah. homeowners minds of mm-hmm. you know we do live in what we call the wildland urban interface mm-hmm. um so it's good to just pre-plan hey what would we take um you know look at your house as far as um having that idea of defensible space you yeah. know maybe you don't want trees right next to the whole house you know type of thing mm-hmm. um it's just good stuff to think about yeah yeah definitely so should we break in a couple of these beers sure so these beers here you can have this one these beers folks i'm really excited to tell you about them so snake river brewing did a I went over there today just to get some beers for the episode and they said, Hey, we have this unreleased lager that we just brewed for fun. Cause we were bored. Um, but then they label it in these cool labels. I'll put it up to the camera. It's got like black and white with the Tetons on it. Kind of some wishy looking lines like the river maybe. Um, but they don't have the ABV or anything on it. So I guess they can't sell it. Um, so I guess they just give it to friends or maybe, I don't know what they do with it. But so we're trying it out for the first time. They don't even really have a name for it. It's just this unreleased lager. Um, but they kind of, he kind of said it'd be like a combination of like, kind of like a juicy lager and with a little bit of maybe like the bitterness of like uh, the 
of like a Paco's, I think is what he was saying. I don't know. He was, he was, the brewer was telling me about it and he went into all the different types of hops and he lost me. <laughs> sure. Cause I don't know any of those, but cheers. Cheers. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Mm. That is like a little bit like juicier. There's like, you can get the juicy and the bitter at the same time. Do you get that? Yeah. I wonder with coming out of COVID, if we're going to have all these new beers, um, oh, yeah. just since everyone was at home or, you know, just fueling that creativity into new beer, new books, new music, new podcasts. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people, like if you, you know, weren't affected dramatically by COVID, you didn't get it or your family didn't get it or die or anything, and you were able to keep your job or keep your business open, a lot of people looked back on themselves and said, or like, and said like, what are some projects or some hobbies I can do because I'm not doing everything else we were doing before, right? So my business really picked up because all these small businesses were saying, you know, we've been thinking about marketing forever. Let's freaking do it now. We can keep the doors open. Let's do this marketing thing now. Sure. Because we have the time to focus on this. Um, and I know a lot of people like got into fitness. Like, that's great. I don't know. How long did it take you to, to write the book? It's generally about a three-year process. So okay. sort of a year to you know, do the book proposal and get a book deal and then write the manuscript and then a year to sort of rewrite it, uh-huh. you know, based on your editor's comments. Um, and then about a year in sort of that like pre-production phase, like copy editing and marketing, getting it ready to be published. So it, it's like a three-year marriage. Mm-hmm. And when did it actually come out? It just came out uh, April 6th. Oh, sick. So like, so, that was like right around when you messaged me, right? Maybe a little bit yeah, before? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so awesome. Yeah. So did you, were you able to, well, I guess you're, you still are working full time, right? Yeah. And we were going to publish it, uh, basically six months earlier, but we pushed it back due to COVID just mm-hmm. cause you know, people weren't working and that type of thing. Distribution. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I've always been full time with the fire department Yeah, and the park service and just kind of have been writing in my off hours, yeah. you know? days off before work after work that type of thing Mm -hmm. yeah so we talked about the end of the book kind of take us back to the beginning um you said where you're from already but tell us like kind of how you talk about why you wanted to um do the role that you did in the national parks you did it in sure actually the journey that i detail in the book really started in the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, Mm -hmm. which is a small country about the size of Switzerland wedged between uh, India and Tibet. And so I was leading a trek over there, the snowman trek. It's a 24 day Mm -hmm. trek, about 210 miles. And um, this was 2010. Mm -hmm. And I had a client who got a very severe case of altitude sickness and also dehydration. And she just basically went comatose around 13,000 feet. Yeah. And at the time I, I was an EMT, but, um, it was real touch and go as to whether or not she was going to survive and make a long story short. Um, we had an ER doc on the trip with us and also an ER nurse. Oh. So I sort of delegated care to them and yeah. it was like, we couldn't descend cause there was, a, there was a snowstorm and then we called for a helicopter, but Bhutan doesn't have a helicopter. So they had to call, uh, the in the army in India and then they couldn't fly because of the storm. And then, so we had to put her in a portable altitude chamber, mm-hmm. which is also called a gamma bag. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so it was this crazy night, and in the middle of the night, I like 3 a.m., I just stepped outside this little bungalow where we had her, and I just like said a prayer. I'm like, I really want to learn to save lives at the highest level. And mm-hmm. so after that, I kind of redirected my life, and I went to paramedic school, um, which, of course, is you know one of the highest levels of pre-hospital care. Um, and then following that, I was working in Los Angeles, but you know, wasn't really getting hired on with the fire departments. And so I took a job with uh, the National Park Service. Mm-hmm. Um, the plan was to kind of work at uh, Yellowstone for a summer and then go back to LA. But what sort of happened was I kind of reconnected with the outdoors and nature. And um, I realized, hey, like, I want to be in the mountains, like these people, like that's my tribe. Yeah. I love the outdoors. So the 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 experience with the park service really just like changed my life. Yeah, certainly. As it as I would imagine it would for anybody. Like to live, <clears throat> you said you got out there like April. It was like April to October, April to end of September. Um, basically, yeah, early May till October. Yeah, but yeah, that's a substantial time to be living in like, some the like the most beautiful country in America, right? Yeah, and the thing is, uh. Uh, EMS in the city kind of gets all the hype, you know, the shootings and the stabbings and everything like that. But from a paramedic's point of view, it's pretty easy because you're surrounded by hospitals and like Los Angeles, there's like 11 trauma centers. Mm -hmm. If you don't really know what's going on, you can just kind of, they call it like swoop and scoop. You know, you swoop in, grab your patient, just go to the hospital. Yeah. It's five minutes away. Whereas in Yellowstone, it's, you know, austere wilderness, remote medicine. And so- Our closest hospital was in uh, Rexburg, Idaho, which is two about two and a half hours from Old Faithful. Yeah. So the learning curve was just huge, and the stakes were immediately higher because we we couldn't just you know swoop and scoop. We were with these patients for you know forty five minutes to three hours, depending. Um, so you really got to know your protocols and your treatment, and it's terrifying, but also like exhilarating just working in that wilderness environment yeah and what's the saying you kind of repeated to yourself when you were questioning what to do next like uh order early and order big or something oh, like sure yeah order big order early and don't be afraid to stand resources down yeah so the idea there is you know maybe you're responding to a guy with chest pain who's high up on the trail just get the additional rangers come in get the ambulance come in launch the helicopter mm-hmm. So have everything moving towards you, and then you can always cancel them if you don't need them. Yeah. Because um, there's always that time delay. And yeah. they talk about the golden hour, which is, you know, in a in a city environment, you want to have a patient within the OR, the ER, within 60 minutes after the injury. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Yellowstone and Yosemite, many times we couldn't even reach the patient for 60 minutes or more. Yeah. You know, so by then there's sort of this evolving injury that or illness that they have has gotten worse. Yeah. Um, so we're always behind the curve and we're always racing time, mm-hmm. um, which is what makes it challenging, but also exciting. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. When you were in this, the, I think the Yellowstone chapter stood out to me the most because, or chapters, right. There's kind of multiple chapters yeah. f- for each park. Um, because I've been up there, been around it a bunch, and I have done those drives. Not I've never driven like to Ermac from Old Faithful, but I can understand. I know that terrain. I know 
those roads and I know like there's not anything like St. John's is here, Ermac's there. Is there one on the north side that you can bring people that you well no, you're you're an old faithful, so um we didn't really drive north. Now there is a little hospital in Big Sky. Yeah. But um we would generally like trend towards the south. Yeah. A lot of times we would meet like uh, another ambulance service in Island Park. Yeah. So we'd drive halfway and kind of hand off the patient. Yeah. But yeah, that stuck out to me because I'm like, yeah, that's he's totally on an island out there with like himself, his team, and that's it to rely upon until you get them out of the park boundaries to that other ambulance group or to the hospital completely. Yeah. And uh, it re- requires a multi-agency approach. And yeah. so it's you know, dispatch and then first responders, us as paramedics and then the helicopter team. And then maybe we're radioing ahead to the hospital. So Mm -hmm. their trauma team's waiting. So in this rural area, which, you know, even Jackson is, all the players have to kind of be on their game. Yeah. Um, You know, with Saddle Butte, for instance, it was, you know, like, Wildland firefighters from the National Park Service, the National Forest, Jackson Hole Fire. Hot, sh- what do they call them? Hot shots from like Oregon, Montana. I think so, yeah. And there was like a lot of states that brought people in. And I was like, holy shit. Right. They got here quick. <laughs> totally. So it's um, in the book, I talk about this thing called the Swiss cheese model of like causation. Mm-hmm, and yeah. so when someone gets hurt, if you think of it as like slices of Swiss cheese mm-hmm. and, um, you know, say you're backcountry skiing, which, you know, it sounds like you love to do. And <laughs> I recently got into myself. We have all these safeguards as far as like the beacon, shovel probe and the terrain selection. So we're putting up these safeguards to prevent a bad outcome or an accident. Mm-hmm. But the Swiss cheese model says that without those safeguards, sometimes like the holes in the Swiss cheese line up such that there is that accident. Yeah, um, like it could, to, to go on that example, it could be like, uh, you know, your beacon's out of battery and you f- didn't notice it or, and then in the same day, then like your shovel breaks or something. And then like, yeah, bad outcome. or maybe you're hungover and yeah. you know, you're not yeah. at your best physically. Yeah. Um, so th- that's sort of the, this idea of what causes these injuries and accidents. But then I also kind of look at that. There's a, like a silver lining to the Swiss cheese model. And it's when all the elements of, a successful rescue rescue come together to save a life yeah. miraculously. Mm-hmm. You know, when the holes line up and there's a positive outcome, mm-hmm. which is what I saw like many times. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a fun place to work. Could you speak to, um, you mentioned this in the book, the kind of the trend of, the, of calls you would get in Yellowstone versus Yosemite? Because you kind of talk about that, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. Great question. It's, it's, yeah, really was surprising to me. So Yellowstone, you have all the hotels in the park, mm-hmm. whereas Grand Teton, most people are staying in town. Mm-hmm. So Jackson Hole Fire is busy with the calls in town, mm-hmm. more so than Grand Teton EMS. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Yellowstone, you have, you know, the Old Faithful Inn, the Snow Lodge. So that tourists, many of them on bus tours, they're all going up to higher elevation. It's like over 7,000 feet. Yeah. Um, so we saw like, a ton of medical patients there. Um, people don't want to take their meds when they're on vacation. Mm-hmm. You know, they stop drinking water and you know, they're drinking more beer and alcohol. Yeah. You call it the water pill. You forgot to <laughs> yeah, take his exactly. water pill. He didn't, yeah, he didn't take his diabetes pill is this pill is water pill. Right. 
Uh, and then they get up to elevation and maybe they hike m- more than they normally do. And then their pre-existing conditions kind of exacerbate. And, yeah. Um, and then with Yellowstone, the park's so big, a lot of people, you know, you have to just keep on driving, stop at a site, take a couple of pictures, move on. Yeah. Because the park's, you know, 2.2 million acres. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Ye- Yosemite, um, I'd say there's a more active type of uh, tourist. So you mm-hmm. got the rock climbers, you got, you know, slack liners, mm-hmm. um, base jumpers, even though it's illegal. Yeah. Um, a lot more people hiking on the trail. Yeah. And then there was a, I would say Yosemite's pretty easy to get to from like San Francisco and Sacramento. Uh-huh. So you have a lot more like city folk who, you know, they're not really versed as far as like the 10 essentials of hiking. Yeah. Um, so we got a, a ton more search and rescue up there. Yeah. And uh, anything from like carrying people out on a wheeled litter to like, you know, short haul rescues with the helicopter. Yeah. Um, and then Grand Teton is sort of a, a mixture of both. You do have the backcountry rescues with like, the Jenny Lake Rangers, but then you also do have a few hotels there like Jackson Lake Lodge. So it was a good blending of like the medical and sort of the wilderness search and rescue uh, yeah. type of experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think you called Yosemite like a trauma park yeah, exactly. in the book or something right? where it's a lot of people like falling off rocks, falling off climbing, like hitting sure. rocks, falling into rivers, all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was there in the winter and there's that ice rink too. And just, we called it the trauma rink you oh, know, yeah. every day, just multiple people falling, hitting their head. Does, but, um, does it stay below freezing there the whole winter? No. And in fact, I was there like during a drought, but there actually is a ski area in Yosemite. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Um, which is funny, but yeah, yeah it, it snowed and I was like, it's going to be amazing. And I got like a powder day, but actually the, the ski area is like, it wasn't steep enough. Like the snow was so deep. I couldn't, <laughs> I wasn't even moving cause the yeah. hill wasn't steep enough. Oh, uh, that's funny. But I was all psyched to ski. And then after that, I think it was just drought for the rest of the winter. But, um, I was there when they were doing the Dawn wall, you know, yeah. uh, I love that movie. Yeah. Tommy Caldwell and yeah. Kevin Jorgensen. So mm-hmm. we would go and watch them each day, you know, climbing up there and, um, that's sort of, I bookend that with, uh, Dean Potter, who's famous climber and mm-hmm. he passed away like two weeks after I left. Um, so I, I mentioned that just cause that kind of puts it, my experience into sort of like a, you know, a time segment for people. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh yeah. It's, you know, it's a lot going on there that winter. Yeah, definitely. So climbing is one of those things I've, I've watched, you know, obviously I watched free solo and uh, the Don Wall and um, Valley Uprising, and I've sure. only I've like gone to a like a gym thing like twice in Minneapolis, like before I even lived here, and I've climbed the middle, but that's not it's like scrambling, right? Uh, but but rock climbing is is a sport that the like the more I learn about it, the more I think those guys on those movies are so gnarly and like good at what they do because if you're just watching like Alex do free so that free solo climb but you have no reference to the difficulty of the climb you're like oh it seems like it's easy like it seems like what's what's whatever it's no 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 ropes and that's crazy but the difficulty like you don't know if that's a hard climb or not but then you start like doing some climbing and you understand the rating system and then you go back and watch it and like they say the rating system and you're like he did what with no ropes in record time sure (laughs) you're like what in the world 
yeah, those guys, it's just another level there. Yeah. And um, I hadn't really rock climbed before I went there, and yeah. I did a little bit while I was there. And, yeah, have a huge respect for those guys. And um, <clears throat> I kind of make a parallel in the book between rock climbing and working as, like, a remote EMS provider. Yeah. In that you're kind of balancing, like, the microcosm with the macrocosm. Um, so we got to be, like, very attentive to the specifics of patient care, almost like that handhold you're looking for. But then you also got to like keep track of your larger goal, which is getting that patient to definitive care. So like the broad spectrum of the climbing route, but also like the individual handholds. Yeah. So I saw like sort of a parallel between that and working as like a wilderness paramedic. Definitely. Yeah. Are you, are you at Liberty to say which park was your favorite to work in? Um, definitely. And I guess, I'll take the you know diplomatic approach in that I loved them all. Um, Yellowstone, I think, has a special place in my heart because it was my first job with the Park Service. And uh, we all lived at Old Faithful, so we had that campfire community, just like potlucks and barbecues every night. Um, Yosemite, I think, I loved from the point of view in that I did a lot more there. Like I, There was a lot more search and rescue, so I could get out of the ambulance and get on the trail mm-hmm. and Yosemite will just train you to do as much as you want. Like my friend, he, he wanted to learn to be part of the mounted patrol team. So they taught him how to ride a horse. And, um, so I think ah. Yosemite was good. Just you got shit the, falling around everywhere here. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. The varied experience there. Yeah. And then I guess Grand Teton's fun just cause it's a mixture of sort of Yellowstone and Yosemite. So I'm still messing around with the best way to use them and like their batteries and stuff. Like they were charging when you got here because I forgot to charge them before because I haven't taken them out in a while. But yeah, we've got beer open, so this can go anyway, and I'm happy. Yeah, definitely. We've got a six pack to drink. We do, yeah. I didn't. They didn't tell me how alcoholic this was, so I have no oh, clue. Yeah. This could be nine or ten. We have no clue. Right. There's just a fire station. I might have to crawl to. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So. Where do you? So where do you? What do you work for now? I am full-time with Jackson Hole Fire EMS. Okay. Um, and then I've been working summers as a paramedic in Grand Teton. Yeah. You know, it was like a second job. Mm-hmm. That's so. funny. I'm glad you said that. Uh, a, a revolving trend on the show here is people, successful people in Jackson Hole, all have second jobs. Like, mm-hmm. you do that. I do. My, my day job is I sell uh, software to banks for a fintech company. And then I do my marketing stuff on the side. Um We've had uh, a real estate agent friend in here. Real estate's his main gig. And then he also is a para, uh, paraglide pilot nice. on the side, right? Like, yeah. So all these people have – everybody has two jobs if you actually live in Jackson, right? And I think it's awesome. Well, yeah, three. I mean, it's like you got the sales job, the marketing, yeah. and then this. And then I have the writing. I have Grand Teton. I have Jacksonville Fire EMS. Yeah. Yeah, it's a pricey place to live, but obviously it's worth it with the outdoors and, you know, the recreation opportunities. Definitely. Yeah, I found myself when I moved here working so much harder than I ever had before um, because of that, like, that fear that's behind me of not, you know, not being able to stay here or something. Right. So I'm, like, always trying to do more, making sure I can extend the time I live here farther and farther and then as like a pipe dream kind of a thing to run towards 
that dream of like owning a home here and you know picturing myself sitting on sitting on a porch that i own in jackson hole looking at the tetons or something you know right having a beer or whiskey right yeah that's the dream it's it's that both that running away from something and running towards something is where i'm at right now in life right well it seems like you're doing pretty well yeah thank you but yeah we're spoiled i mean it's just the fact that you can you know go to the pass and Mm-hmm. do a backcountry ski or it's like, yeah, hey, I want a trail run. I think I'll just go to Taggart Lake. And it's like yeah. literally one of the best hiking trails in the country. Yeah. And you know, backcountry skiing. It's ama- So yeah, we're spoiled to live here. Or I could just decide like, yeah, I'm going to go climb the middle tomorrow. You know, right. like I climbed the middle twice last summer and it was like, I slept in my own bed. Woke up early, certainly, but like I slept in my own bed, went, did it, came back and slept in my own bed again. and got to recover here instead of like, I don't know, camping somewhere, or some other peak that you have to go a long ways to. Yeah. I mean, I went to paramedic school at UCLA and yeah. so I fell in love with surfing there and I moved here and I'm like, okay, you can recreate on the rivers, the mountains, there's hot springs. And then like this place almost has everything. And then now I find, Hey, you can even surf on the snake river. I'm like, yeah. Hey, I'm glad you it, mentioned it that. Does I have happen everything. to be wearing my surf Wyoming shirt. Nice. Have you heard of them? Yeah. I love that stuff. Have you seen, um, the episode he's going to hate that. I can't remember his name. Oh man. I had a guy on here and I'm going to look his name up. Cause I hate that. I can't remember his name. He, um, Jonathan Bennick, Jonathan Bennick, um, came on the show and he is kind of an ambassador for surf Wyoming. Sure. He was like one of the first people to surf on the snake. So, and he wants to take me out. I should, I should text him. He said he wanted to take me out in the spring. Yeah. Um, so if you want to go surf, we could, we could probably set that up for sure. Yeah. I've been out there a few times and, uh, I got some really good advice from Will who works at our rendezvous river sports. Yeah. Um, cause it's pretty daunting in the spring. Like the water's freezing. There's yeah. like you know, trees floating through. Yeah. But he said just to like swim through the rapids a few times, um, to get used to it and then try surfing, you know, cause yeah. the fear when you like the first time I just tried to surf and you know, you, you fall and then you feel like you're going to drown. So if you swim through the rapids a couple times, you get that worry of drowning out of the way Yeah. and you get used to the rapids. Then when you try to learn to surf it, there's not that fear factor, you know? Yeah. But um yeah, it should be picking up in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so definitely. We should definitely get out there. The rapids I I have done the like the classic whitewater rafting route, like the tourist route, like right. three, four times. Um the river like the whole concept of like ri- the river stuff, like going through the rapids is really sketchy if you don't have experience in it and don't know what's going on. Cause like on that stretch there's you know, there's that one spot where it's like a 50 foot waterfall under the under the river you know have you have you been through that stretch at all yeah i can't remember the name but yeah it's just on the normal stretch that every tourist goes through and it's just like yeah right below us is a 50 foot waterfall and some people get stuck under it and all you got to do is hold your breath (laughs) and it's like what that's fucking terrifying yeah kind of like this recirculating hole Um, yeah yeah no it's crazy the nice thing about lunch counter is it's super deep Cause I was thinking like, Hey, you're surfing with this leash, like yeah. near rocks. That sounds like an entrapment hazard waiting to happen, but yeah. it's very deep, you know? So if you do wipe out or if your raft ever flips, you're probably not going to touch the bottom. 
Yeah. And then the nice thing is it's flat water after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not like you fall and you're going into another rapid. But yeah, I think maybe a show on just like the surf, surf culture of Wyoming would be like super interesting. That's kind of what we did yeah. with that guy, Jonathan. Okay, nice. We kind of talked about it because he like, we we were, it was kind of to talk about this, that company, which we got mm-hmm. into that, like that whole thing and what it means to surf Wyoming because it's not, probably not evident to the random person if you don't know what we can actually do here. Right. Um, but have you ever tried uh, wake surfing? I have, yeah. That's freaking fun. That's awesome. Growing up, growing, growing up in Minnesota, everybody has cabins and there's a, you know, 10,000 lakes. So everybody has boats and we all do all the stuff. Um, but that is so much fun because it's like you go like, you know, 10, 12 miles per hour. So you can still drink and you can have uh, music playing. You can still hear and you're close to the boat. So your friends can, you know, hang out with you still. And that, that shit's a blast. I've seen some people drink while they're wake surfing. Yeah. Chug I've done beer. that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I did that. Um, somebody, uh, you know what getting iced means? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody like, Went to go hand me a beer while I was surfing, and then they like at the last second, like switched their hands and handed me an ice. Oh, They're yeah. like, "Oh, got you!" And then I was like, "No, I got you," because I just chugged it while surfing and kept surfing. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it was. That was. I think that's when I peaked. That takes skill for yeah, sure. Thank you. So yeah, man, you said you get we're getting into some backcountry skiing. Have you? How long have you lived in Jackson? Uh, five years. Five years. Yeah. So. So you've been going to the resort before this year and tearing that up yeah uh basically my plan was to you know work in the park service and then move back to los angeles yeah but then as i mentioned i just found you know i grew up in new hampshire and i felt like i kind of lost that side of me living in la i mean it's nice there you can surf Mm -hmm. so like over the course of my experience with the park service and the book i'm like hey i need to live in a mountain town so i started applying to fire departments Mm -hmm. in the mountain towns you know bozeman park city um, got hired here. Yeah. So I'm here to stay and w- have been with Jacksonville fire for five years. That's awesome. And then I think like a lot of people, the hardest part here is like, there's so much gear you want to buy, yeah. but you have limited income. So yeah. it's like, all right, this will be my mountain bike year. This will be, mm-hmm. so this past year is my sort of backcountry skiing year. Yeah. So I got safety, you know, beacon shovel probe. I took avalanche one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, Search and rescue, they handle most of the rescues here. Um, but I'm often in the ambulance where they bring the patient. Waiting, yeah. Yeah, so I have like a very healthy respect for avalanches just because I'm oftentimes transporting the patient. Yeah. Yeah, so I've just been very sort of slowly uh, entering the backcountry and just going with people who know what they're doing, sort of doing you know, not, we're not like charging little tucks or anything. we're just, I'm just like, I have a healthy respect for it. So I'm easing into it. Yeah. Yeah. That was this year after learning more, oh, and our other lights out, um, after learning more about avalanches than I ever knew before, I had a deeper respect and like, I, I did a lot less this year than I did last year because out of respect for what I now knew now know. Sure. And I think a couple of times last year I like got lucky a little bit got away with one they say in the books i've read on and in, in the course they say you never want to feel like you got away with one when you come out right that would mean you made bad decisions but got lucky and i think i think I had a couple of days last year where i did that um so it's just a constant journey to keep learning more and keep checking yourself and realizing like you know i i, I would i would tend to ask myself like is this the day that i want to get caught in an avalanche sure <laughs> and that helped me determine where to go 
Yeah. And the thing I learned in my class, you know, from uh, American Avalanche Institute was if you have questions on the snowpack, you know, and some other factors, if you just, you know, terrain selection will save you. So maybe you just want to keep it below 30 degrees that day. Um, so, I mean, I'm happy skiing powder no matter what the pitch, but, uh, yeah, I started going to, um, the Phillips bench area of the pass because that there's a ridge in there called the reef reef ridge. And most of that is under 30. And so it's pretty safe and it's, you know, not going to get a lot of like, um, wind, wind slabbing or anything like that. So that was my safe, my kind of my safe go-to when I wanted to do something that was kind of big, but just kept myself safe. And then I even on my biggest day, I connected it all the way up into the ridge between little tucks and unskiable and then right. did a line into unskiable. So it's not, so it's unskiable, but it's snowboardable apparently. There you go. Cause I snowboarded it. Nice. <laughs> and the dogs did it with me. That's awesome. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was a really fun day. That was like, I don't really go like line hunting, you know, like people do like they go for coulars and lines right. and things. I'm not really like that. I'm like, give me a bowl full of pow and I'm just fine. Like I'm here, here to cruise go. pow, right. walk around, get an exercise, get my dogs out, have them feel good and be in the snow. I love just being in the snow. So I'm cool with like Edelweiss all day long, you for know, sure, glory yeah. all day long. Totally. But that day was like actually kind of like a cool line. I looked back and I was like, oh shit, look at that. And it, and it's cool. You could see it from when you drive from town to here to Wilson, right. you can see the line that I did oh, nice. from there. Okay. So I was like, I, I like being able to look back on the, on the peaks I've climbed, the lines sure. I've done and be like, Oh yeah, I know, awesome. I know it's up there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious cause you know, I, I haven't talked to the books pretty new as far as, you know, it's only been out a few weeks, but has reading it as someone who loves the outdoors, has it changed your view on like national parks? Do you look at them differently? Or are you going to like pack, you know, you're going for a day hike or do the middle or were you uh, like pretty well versed in all that stuff before? I was pretty well versed and like I, you know, grew up playing sports and played football in college. So like the nutrition and hydration side of sure. just being active, I've always had a, a good handle on. So I've always, and I've always been on the one to pack, uh, be on the, more careful side of like packing things right. nice. where I'm like an extra water. Cause it's not, you're not, I always tell myself I'm not packing for the successful hike or the successful tour. I'm packing for the unsuccessful one when like I'll have a ton of food in my bag that just like, like, you know, bars that just stay there it because it's not the one I don't need it. If I go do glory, I'm not going to get that hungry where I need it to come back down. Sure. I'll need it if I break my legs somewhere out there and need to stay a night or, Right. get lost and I need to eat for, you know, in eight, eight hours. Right. Definitely. So I'm usually the one packing on that end. And nice. then my goal is like, you know, don't starve myself or, um, dehydrate myself, but le want to have some left at the end. Perfect. That means that I didn't, that means that I wasn't out there for two days stranded. Right. Definitely. No, I love to hear that. I mean, you're, planning your trip you're packing well you got a good sense of you know what you're walking into and yeah um, i don't want to be the story of the newspaper that right. like hiker rescued by all-star team of of emts right like i don't want to be that guy 
Yeah, no, my friends laugh because even like going to the movies, I'll, it's almost like I pack a whole bag full of like yeah. cliff bars and water and like, hey, you're just going to the movies. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I just got back from heli skiing last week and the guide um, picked up my backpack and he's like, geez, man, this thing weighs a ton. And I was just packing, you know, with the idea that, hey, I could be out there all night and, you know, a lot of food, my own first aid kit. Yeah. Um, which was a lot of what he had, but... I've learned that that idea of like redundancy mm-hmm. is like hugely important mm-hmm. in the backcountry. Yeah, you know, so like there's a saying like two is one and one is none. You know. Yeah. Um, but it's, I it is something I can like make fun of myself that like you, my pack is always super heavy and big. But mm-hmm. hey, I'm ready for whatever happens. Yeah, I used to not feel that way. I used to be like a light. You know, I don't want to have to feel the weight. But then at some point, I was like, you know, am I the strongest, most in shape mountain? recreator out there and the obvious answer is no so i can get more in shape and so i shouldn't be worried about like carrying a couple of bars or carrying an extra bottle of water that isn't that much weight i just need to get stronger if that's what's bothering me for right? sure like it's not like i was some like i'm not like jimmy chin out there ripping up everything like i'm right. average but i can get stronger and then that water bottle the extra bottle of water does not bother me yeah definitely and then um i like to tell people like leave your itinerary in your car yeah. So if someone is ever missing, you know, and there's that itinerary on the dashboard that helps, you know, the search and rescue team hugely. Oh yeah. So, but it's just good reminders for anyone who's listening out there. Yeah. Yeah. T- you talk about it a little bit in the book too, like your um, you had an experience in Yosemite where you had to like run up a trail and you were just gassed when you got there, but you still right. had to do your job. And then, so from that day on, you were like, I'm going to be better, more in shape. And so you took to it to, run up this trail all the time and get in better shape. Um, could you speak to, uh, for the audience, your kind of your fitness and your diet that you focus on to be in really good shape? Because you're, you know, you're not just getting there, slapping a bandaid on somebody and calling it good. Like you're carrying people, you're carrying stuff. You're, you're at altitude, you're hiking up trails, you're running up trails. Can you talk about, um, diet and your exercise routines you do? Sure. Yeah. Um, The call you're talking about is uh, took place in Yosemite, and mm-hmm. it's never a good thing when the rescuer arrives on scene more short of breath than the patient, yeah, just because. Um, sure, yeah, just because they're out of shape. But uh, <laughs> what I learned at Yosemite was, you know, a lot of times on the Mist Trail, going to like Vernal and Nevada Falls, get a lot of search and rescues up there. Mm-hmm. Um, the call doesn't really begin till you reach the patient's side. And yeah. so you might have to go two, three miles up the trail and then, then you're at the patient's side and then the call is really beginning. So, you know, as I found on the first couple of calls, if I'm out of breath, you know, that's going to affect your ability to make good decisions because you're like hypoxic. Yeah. Um, so I needed to get in better shape. And um, there was a podcast I listened to and he was just saying that, first responders, you know, kind of look at yourself as like a rescue athlete. Yeah. Which is this new mindset. Cause you know, a lot of fire departments, it's sort of just eat a lot. You know, the firefighters have the big belly and they're just kind of sitting on the engine. Cop, cops eating donuts too is kind yeah, of that exactly. same breath. Um, but when you think of it, um, cause actually like cardiovascular heart attacks, that's the number one killer of firefighters. Mm. It's not the fire. It's having heart attacks. So there's that, kind of renewed emphasis on wellness. Um, and again, I love that idea of like you're a rescue athlete. So following that call, I just, you know, put a plan in place and 
it's nothing really groundbreaking. It's just try to do something active every day. And so I yeah. sort of like, I like a varied exercise regime of like, you know, trail running, mountain biking. Um, I go to inversion yoga a bunch for like the hot yoga. Um, I got to try that. I, I yeah. love yoga. I just, I tend to do, I find kind of how found my like problem areas and I know how to fix them. And I kind of do that little like 10 minute flow as often as I can. And that helps. Sure. But I got, I would love to do a hot yoga. And I um, remember, remember is that, Teton Sports Club, and they have they have oh, classes yeah. too. So I gotta get in there and do do one of those one of these days. Right, yeah. Um, I love it just because it's like you know strength, flexibility, and yeah. also that kind of meditation. Yeah. And then just like body awareness. Mm-hmm. So as a firefighter, you're crawling around. Um, you know, you got to conserve your breath because you have the air pack on back. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a huge thing, and then um, it does help with sort of like. I found when you have a tough call and like some of that post-traumatic stress, I found the yoga kind of helps you just get rid of stuff. Yeah. Um, diet wise, again, nothing crazy. Just try to eat healthy, you know, vegetables yeah. and follow every, the, everything in moderation. I would say follow the Eden Morris, uh, game plan on, on nutrition. Yes, definitely. Right? That's her last name. Yep. Yeah. Shout out to you, Eden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and then, yeah, Jimmy Chin had a quote where the best way to stay in shape is not to get out of shape in the first place. Yeah, I love um, that. That's a really, that's a really good perspective. Right. But, uh, yeah, again, we're so lucky to live here. A lot of different ways to stay in shape. And, mm-hmm. of course, living here, you never feel like you're in shape because, you know, if you if you climb the ground in a day, then there's someone who's climbed it twice in a day. And if you yeah. climbed it twice in a day, there's someone who's done it three times in a day. But that's kind of cool because it's just, it always keeps you striving, you know, to keep growing and getting better. Yeah. That can be, uh, that, so that's, I think that's, um, this is a place where it's, you have to really remember to compare yourself today with yourself yesterday I like instead that. of like yeah. to others. Cause like, right. like, you know, I've, I, I, I messed up one day and I climbed glory, uh, slightly ahead of Jimmy chin and Griffin post. Sure. And they're zooming and I'm like, oh shit, I can't get passed by them. I'm like, I got to keep going. And I'm just like grinding. My, I'm like huffing and puffing. I'm like dying. But there's so like, there's people who do this professionally and like Jimmy's right. climbed fucking Everest. Like I'm never going to be as in mountain as in good mountain shape as Jimmy Chin is. Right. You know? And so to compare myself to him or any other great mountain athletes are just badasses here that do it way more than I can. Cause I have a full-time job. Um, could be dangerous for sure to like, you know, my mental health or my physical health if I'm trying to do what they're doing. So I always try to remember to compare it to, I have a good base of having a lot of family and friends in Minnesota and I can look, I can look at them and say like, you know, I cl- I've climbed the middle, I climbed the middle twice last summer. Most of them would thought it was uh, incredible and crazy to do it once and I did it twice. So I get, I like get to, I sure. feel I can pat myself in the back and say like, I'm going above and beyond um, a lot of really, really good people and yeah, myself. Totally. I love right? that. I mean, even just like skinning up snoking to us, it's like a normal day, but it's a hard thing that a lot of people couldn't do. Yeah. And I think yeah. actually here you got to know when you, you got to know when to say no to you know, maybe someone suggesting this run or cause a lot of the rescues we've had, it, it's, you know, someone's getting in over their head, but they don't want to, 
speak up because there's like the peer pressure yeah. and you know maybe you know it's good to put a plan and itinerary in place but then maybe it gets changed last minute or you have your turnaround time for the summit but then you're so close or um like i read that book deep survival which is really interesting and the, the tagline is like why some people survive and some people don't oh and the people that don't he's just pointing out that there's a lot of little small decisions that collectively add up to one yeah. big bad decision you yeah. know so i don't know um so i learned this surfing you know because my friends who were like very experienced would take me on you know 10 huge waves when i was learning mm -hmm. so i learned to say like yeah i'm gonna sit this one out yeah um, so i think living in jackson people need to be able to feel comfortable to say like eh, you know i'm not up for this today or whatever mm -hmm. it is yeah so for sure yeah um definitely uh you mentioned some of the ptsd that comes along with this career path um, and I was wondering, do you want to talk about any of the stories that you mentioned in the book that it, kind of in that chapter, you talk about that whole concept of PTSD and all those, some of those scarier experiences that you went through. Do you want to talk about those at all? Sure. Um, basically the goal is to sort of, you know, transition or transform like post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. And mm -hmm. so working as a paramedic, you need to sort of put your, professional side on to run the calls and that means you're compartmentalizing the human side of it mm -hmm. um, just because you need to be operationally ready um, so the danger in that is you can never like if you don't go back and revisit these horrific things they can kind of begin to build up internally mm -hmm. and so I guess what happened with me is you know I ran um, like suicide call and then sort of a body recovery and um you know, a double fatality car accident. And I guess I hadn't really like revisited that trauma emotionally. And so mm -hmm. I was kind of seeing it begin to kind of bubble up in sort of that post-traumatic stress continuum. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, um, it's a huge issue with first responders. Like yeah. currently, um, first responder suicide is, causes more line of duty no it causes more deaths than line of duty deaths and so what i say in the book is going home is more dangerous than going to work yeah um so for my own journey you know i i was sort of starting to feel these um symptoms coming up and so i'm very like proactive in my healing and so i went to like read books and podcasts and um what i just kind of learned was that you know the stuff we see is traumatic just to acknowledge it Mm -hmm. um, don't try to normalize it. Um, you know, every, everything has validity. So like if I see something it affects me, it might not affect you. Um, so don't, don't discount your own experience. Yeah. Um, and then I found ways, um, to sort of process it, you know, journaling, um, which is a huge one. Cause you know, when I run a crazy call, it maybe makes the newspapers. Everyone wants to hear the story. Yeah. So they're sort of, forming the narrative based on their questions. And so with journaling, you write the narrative. It's your own story. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a great way to process. And then, you know, getting outside. I found yoga super helpful, just kind of. Um, and then, of course, like talking to people, you know, mm -hmm. therapists if you need to. Mm -hmm. um, so I sort of, I mean, the 
brief time that the book's been out, I've gotten like a bunch of emails and people relate to those few chapters and they're just like, thank you for including that. Yeah. Um, because it was sort of this unacknowledged silent ep- epidemic that was going on. Yeah. Um, cause as first responders were trained to give help, we're not trained necessarily to ask for help, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was sort of the journey. Definitely. And yeah. That's something. So Taylor being a labor and li- delivery nurse, you know, she's, she's lost a couple babies in her career and I've only, I've experienced it just through her in what she has to go through. And like, she's like, you know, gets woken up and is like, holy shit. Like I'm like having nightmares of, of, of that, what, what happened. And I, sure, yeah. it, uh, it, it wasn't until like I started dating Taylor and that kind of stuff happened. And did I realize the separation in, in career paths and what it actually meant for someone to go over here, like where I'm at and be in business and someone to go over where you guys are and be in, in healthcare and in you and certainly a very high pressure situation. Taylor has situations that are very high pressure also. And I always say like my worst day ever, I call it my biggest client. I say, fuck you. Nobody dies. Right. Both of your worst days, people die. Yeah. No, it's and tough. that's a dramatic difference that, it changed my mindset of my own career to say it's everything's gonna be fine. Like I, I, I'm so much more positive now. Like the shittiest days are fine. Sure. Cause nobody's dead. Well, that's amazing that you're so supportive and you recognize that. And, uh, yeah, I guess part of it with the book is, you know, to help first responders, but also to help the families of first responders, yeah. you know, but, uh, are there any, um, books or podcasts you mentioned some in the, in the, in your book, um, that you want to shout out right now in case anybody's listening and that are, that's looking for that. Yeah, definitely. Um, probably the one that helped me the most is called PJ Medcast. PJ Medcast. Yeah. And that's, uh, based, it's put on by the medical director, this guy, uh, Dr. Steven Rush mm-hmm. for the pararescue. Um, and the pararescue is like the air forces special operations team. Mm-hmm. So like, um, they're like Navy SEALs who are also paramedics. And so... Oh, that's cool. Yeah. They specialize in like combat search and rescue. So if Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger, whoever they get hurt, whenever they get hurt, they're calling the pararescue guys to get are them the, out. So, are those the guys you did... Um, were they involved in that like SWAT training you did you mentioned in the book? They weren't there specifically, uh-huh. but um, you know we operate on some of the same principles as far as... Um, you know, how you would handle a scene like that. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, so yeah, PJ Medcast and, you know, obviously I'm not in the military, but it's got a lot of great information and, mm-hmm. um, he does a bunch on like, um, performance psychology and, you know, just sort of the mental health sides of things and mm-hmm. also a lot on like diet and sleep. Um, so it's a great podcast, I'd say for anyone who's in the medical field or, yeah. um, as far as a PTSD, I've even referred friends like one of my friends, she witnessed like a horrific plane crash that a few of her friends were in. So I sent her that to that podcast um, to listen to a few of these episodes to yeah. deal with some of that post-traumatic stress. And yeah, it helped her out a ton. That's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. To move on to a lighter note. Sure. Um, uh, what kept standing out to me, what astounded me about the kind of your, your, your personal progression in the book, you, the amount of, 
additional certifications and training courses you kept taking throughout uh, the career, the part of your career you mentioned in the book, right? Could you tell the, the people, um, like, I guess your base certification certification is EMT paramedic, right? Am I, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, exactly. And then on top of that, what else did you get that you mentioned in the book? Or don't Yeah, mention, well, I, I came to the park service as a paramedic. Mm-hmm. And so um, paramedic, you know, you start as like an emergency medical responder, and then the next level up is like an EMT. Yeah. And then there's an advanced EMT, and then there's paramedic. Um, so once I started working on the park service, I met just like all these total, like badass all, all hazards responders, you know, yeah. guys who were, had experience with ski patrol, search and rescue, wildland fire. And so I just, that became, that became sort of like an inner goal and a plot goal with the book is I want to help anyone at any time under any condition. So I want to just get training in all these different fields. Um, so a lot of the book is me, you know, learning that. And by me learning, the reader learns, you know, through the book type of thing. So a lot of the book, you know, it's sort of like I'm learning from my mentors with the Park Service. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I got trained in, you know, structure fire, uh, wild wildland fire, tactical EMS, um, hazardous materials. And again, um, that's sort of the fun part living here in Jackson working with Jacksonville fire, we're all hazards. So yeah. whether it's saddle butte or whether it's a guy having a heart attack or whether it's like search and rescue, you know, we're kind of, we get to deploy on all those situations. Yeah. Would you, um, is tactical EMS the part where you were in these like shooter scenarios? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we have like a tactical EMS team, you know, wearing bulletproof vests and everything. Yeah. And so with some of these early, incidents like Columbine and I think the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando paramedics were kept out of the area for like an hour or two. Yeah. As people passed away. So the new model is get the EMS providers in there as fast as you can. So we'll go into an area that's, it's not where bullets are flying. That's called the hot zone, but we'll go into like the warm zone, which has been cleared, but it might not be secure. Um, So we're going in a lot earlier you at least the, the idea is like you at least have some training when bullets are flying or could, if bullets could fly. Yeah, exactly. And then the cor- the course you're talking about in the book, that was for more like SWAT medics, so they're actually going in where the bullets are flying. Yeah. But they the the knowledge is even applicable to like what we do out here. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> so I guess some recent examples was we had that stabbing a couple months ago. Yeah, you know, I've seen a bunch of stories about that about the 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 victim of it yeah and i i was actually on call so we treated the victim Mm -hmm. and then the next day there was that standoff so we deployed as sort of a tactical ems team you know ready there um they brought the swat teams in and so we were in the area in case something happened and we're not going to like bust down the door with the swat team but if something happened we're close and we're ready and we have the protective equipment to help out yeah and so was that your um your handiwork? Uh did you stitch him or did you just get him to St. John's? Well you we stabilize him and get him to St. John's, I guess. Yeah, with that, you know, the hospital's so close. Yeah. Um so it's it's all about like time and tactics. Yeah. So we weren't gonna like start an IV on scene. So we, we loaded him up, you know, stopped the bleeding, 
you know, went code three, lights and sirens at St. John's, but we were able to get like two IVs in route. Um, give him this medication TXA, which helps, you know, with the clotting. Um, and then, yeah, they did great work over there at St. John's. And I think they ultimately flew him to like uh, Idaho Falls. Yeah. Yeah, I was, gonna say, I was just gonna, I had just asked because I saw a story where they were like looking at his scars and that was like the whole, the big front page picture was like him holding up, where was his scars? Like here? Um, yeah, kind here. of in the He abdomen. was like, he had his shirt off and he was like showing this big scar and I was like wondering if that was your handiwork. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, be, I didn't stitch anything. But, yeah. you know, when you think about, uh, there's a saying in Wilderness EMS and especially in Search and Rescue, like movement is medicine. Mm-hmm. So if this patient's, you know, up at paintbrush divide you need to get a move in towards definitive care and so mm-hmm. with the stabbing victim you know it's just the hospital's right down the street that's where you should be yeah so you know movement is medicine get him going there fast yeah i've heard that i've heard that in in terms of uh physical therapy as well i tore my acl in football in in college and uh the 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 best way to like get back and get fully recovered from that is just like keep it moving, go on walks when you can, nice. get that range of motion. So I've heard that in that sense too. That's awesome. What you position know? were you? Uh, wide receiver for the first two years and then tight end for the second two. So, so that was a lot li- bigger. You're like an Edelman and a Gronkowski mixed in one? Um, yeah, I was a little bit like um, – I wasn't as heavy as Gronk is, but more like a Jimmy Graham style, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I'm a six five, but I was like two thirty when I played tight end, and now the, I'm I'm like one ninety right now. So sure, quite nice. a bit, there quite a go. bit heavier for that. Yeah, that's awesome. Definitely cool. Um, what else should we talk about? Is there anything else in the book that you definitely wanted to get out? You have. I this is the, the today I was I was just relooking at this, and I noticed all the really cool. Um, quotes you have from other authors on here. Sure. Like you have Kevin Hazard, author of A Thousand Naked Strangers, Jim DeFelice, is that how you say that? Yep, exactly. Author of American Sniper, which probably everybody knows. Um, ben Montgomery, author of Grandma's Gatewood Walk. Grandma's yeah, Grandma that, Gatewood's that, Walk. It's about this uh, grandmother who walked the Appalachian Trail. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. New York Times bestseller and super inspiring. How do you go so how do you go from like you mentioned like the three year process a little bit, but how do you go from like before then, like, okay, I have these stories that of experiences I've had. I think I should write a book. And then how do you go from there to getting a publishing deal or like figuring out how to go from writing writing as you would as a random individual to writing now as a published author well one thing is you know i've been sort of pursuing the writing business for like 20 years Mm -hmm. um so it's taken a while and there's been a ton of rejection yeah um so i i like to tell people that just to kind of be realistic you know it's not like it's my first book. I've written many like unpublished screenplays and novels <laughs> and everything else, but um, it's all about leveraging your last work, you know? So maybe you write an article for like a local newspaper, but then you leverage that article to get an article in a regional newspaper type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first book was about a, that trek I did in Bhutan mm-hmm. and 
that was without an agent and I went to like university press. Um, and then once, once you've written one book, they know you can like execute the idea. So then you can get in advance to write your second book. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one you have to write it cause you know, anyone can have a good idea, but it's how you execute it. That's the hard part. Yeah. Um, so the second book I was able to get a literary agent and I was able to get a book deal to write it. And that just means like they pay you on the front end. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and then this third book is with the same agent and I was also able to get a, an advance. Um, and then how the advance works is you have to earn it back before you make any money. Uh-huh. So if it's a hundred dollars, you have to sell a hundred dollars worth of books before, Yeah. you know, you start making money. But, um, and then is it up to like your agent or the publisher to get it to the Amazons and the wherever else it's sold to get the distribution side of it? Yeah, definitely. And then um, as far as the quotes on the back, a lot of those, you know, I sort of develop like friendships and like working relationships with some of those authors just based on reading their books in the past or. Yeah. So like any business, as you probably know, it's all about like relationships mm-hmm. and, you know, th- that are formed over years. And so once I had this third book, a lot of these people, were, you know, were friends. And so I was like, hey, you mind reading the book and providing like a promotional quote? And, you know, very generously they did, um, yeah. which helps, you know, sell copies. So that's super nice. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I mentioned it was it's on Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Where where else can people find the book? Well, I love uh, supporting independent bookstores. So like Valley Valley Books has it. I love going to Valley Bookstore because they're. Yeah. I'll go in there or I'll call them and be like, "Hey, can you order me some books?" And I just give them the, my reading the the books I'm looking to read, and then like they call me up when it's there, and I'm like, "All right, great." Sure, they're awesome. Uh, Jackson Hole Book Trader has some, mm-hmm. and then yeah, online Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, yeah, I love Jackson because it's got a great, like, it's a very supportive community. Yeah. You know, for extreme sports, but also for the arts. You know, we've got a mm-hmm. good good art scene here. And yeah. Um, there's a great writing conference in June, um, Jackson Hole Writing Conference. Yeah. Nice. Um, and then, yeah, the bookstores are super supportive. So, yeah, that's where we have we have such support for our own here and anybody doing anything cool or even like slightly different. Like, I don't know. I, for, for, to me, like this, this sort of a book seems a little bit like different than like your average, I don't know, your average maybe writer here or just like the average artist here. Like they're doing a lot of, there's a lot of painting going on. There's a lot of uh, drawing. There's a lot of, photo- a lot of photography, a lot of videography. Mm-hmm. There's less writers and there's certainly not that many writers about the kinds of stories that are in this book. Well, yeah, hopefully. And um, I tried to make it, you know, entertaining and also educational. So my hope was that it's a fast, fun, entertaining read. But above all, that people just realize, like, what a gift the national parks are. And yeah. I just want to inspire people to get out there and explore them with their friends and family. Yeah, definitely. What's the saying? I don't know if you mentioned it, but I've but everyone talks about it, about national parks. It's uh, president. One of our presidents said, like, it was America's best idea. Yeah. Um, was it Teddy Roosevelt? Someone like that. I think it was Wallace Stegner. You know, okay. I, um, that's who I have in the book. Although he might have been quote one of the presidents, but yeah, yeah way, whoever said it was great. Yeah, um, national parks are like absolutely, Amer- absolutely American. America's best idea. Yeah. And the idea there is just 
that they're very democratic. You know, you have just the democracy or the diversity of the land and animals and the people who visit. And um, I bring that into the book because I see a parallel with EMS. Yeah. In that, you know, <clears throat> it's it's sort of this absolutely American idea that every life has value, every life is sacred, every yeah. life deserves to be saved. Doesn't matter like what race, color, creed you are. Um, so I saw I sort of found this parallel between the national parks and EMS, mm-hmm. and tried to put that in the book. Yeah, um, uh, another recurring theme here on the podcast is complaining about people who get too close to the animals in this area. Sure. Do you have any good or funny stories that involve people getting too close to the animals? Yeah, well, I think uh, the last summer I was in Yellowstone, there was five bison gorons. Mm-hmm. Those are um, always fun. People, you know, what happens is they approach a bison, and then they want to take a selfie with the bison. So when yeah. they turn to take the selfie, that's when the bison charges. Yeah, that's like number one rule for like big animals. Don't turn your back to them. Right. Um, we have we all live here, but I think, so we're used to, you know, wildlife and... yeah. Again, very respectful, but a lot of people, it's just, they've never seen it. And then they've only seen it on Disney. Yeah. So they assume like, hey, that grizzly bear, three ninety nine, it's friendly, you know, just like this cartoon. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they'll get as close as you let them to grizzly bears, elk, bison. Um, so a part, a, lot, a large part of my job was protecting the four-legged animals from the two-legged ones. Yeah. You mentioned that. You mentioned <laughs> it like that. That's funny. Were you were you in Yellowstone the year that the uh, a f- a family found a baby bison and thought it was lost, so they put it in their car to that bring it was uh, I believe a few months after I left. Yeah, um, yeah, they thought it looked cold and I don't know tired or um, so they put it in their their station wagon and they yeah you know took it to the ranger station. And, they put it out there, but it had, you know, the scent of humans on there. So the herd disowned it. So they had to put it down. Yeah. Um, and see, I don't, I don't know how we get that, this trend of people, of tourists not respecting the space of these animals because they, you know, the rangers do a great job in educating people and, I mean, even the, even National Geographic, their documentaries, they show like the bison just hitting each other, and it's like they're it's pretty clear that they could fuck you up. And Definitely. I think there's a new kind of group that I that I saw last summer in Grand Teton, and they're like kind of just volunteers to keep people away from animals once they one gets spotted near a road. But still, like they can't be everywhere at all times, right? There's so many animals sure. and interactions. But like, what do we what? How do we get some sort of trend towards towards the better? Well, I know there's a lot of signage, you know, in all the restrooms now about yep. 25 yards away from bison, 100 yards away from bears. So we try to just educate, but uh, it's hard. And, you know, particularly, like, I'm currently just sort of worried about, like, 399 and her cubs because yeah. she and the cubs, they're, like, worldwide rock stars you know they have ten thousand followers on instagram right yeah um and then yeah there was that lady up in solitude who was like feeding them so i'm just hoping they don't get like habituated to 
people or start, you know, looking for food. Yeah, that was sketchy yeah. when um, we happened to be out of town, luckily, but she and the Cubs walked right through here. Right. Like, walked. I saw a video of her up, like, up right up by Calico, which is not far from here. So I was like, holy shit. Good thing, like, we weren't here and the dogs weren't sitting outside when for that sure. happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I would, in between calls, I would do a lot of, like, you know, bison traffic jams. I direct traffic. And yeah. last summer, you know, it wasn't three ninety nine, but we had two grizzlies, you know, right sort of in like the Pacific Creek area. And so I was, you know, directing traffic there and Yeah. Um Teton's unique in that the bears feed right next to the road. And they think it's maybe because the adult males don't want to come around. So like three ninety nine likes to bring her cubs there because the adult males aren't going to be around. Yeah. Because sometimes they'll like, you know, eat eat the younger males because mm-hmm. they're like competition. Yeah. So I'm I'm pretty sure that's scientifically based, but that's yeah. just kind of what I've heard. Yeah. That like no other national park I know like are the grizzlies right next to the road except Teton. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We I had a at a time where I was uh, drove my mom and my stepdad. We were driving up to Yellowstone for the day and it's uh it was just just in the gates there in moran for grand teton right and um 399 and her and her cubs were in this open area they were maybe like 20 yards from the road and there was like 300 people there sure they're like all sides like encroaching around her and they right. were like real they were like probably within you know 30 feet 40 feet of of all all five of them, four of them. How many cubs are there? I think now there's four. Four cubs, yeah. Which so is all also five like of very them. unique, yeah. Yeah, what I've, I've called her. I've heard her called uh, Fertile Myrtle. There you That's go. Her name for three nine nine because she's right. like mothered the most sure. cubs of like any tracked grizzly ever. Right. Um, but it's just insane how like everybody knows grizzlies are dangerous, and grizzly and most will know that grizzly moms are dangerous around their cubs. And they still decide. They still decide that they need to get a shitty iPhone picture of her, right? Like on their one time out here for the summer, you know. And it just blows my mind that they are that focused on that. Like, you're not. It's one thing when the professional photographers are doing it because they know what they're doing around the animals. A lot of them live here, right? And that's their livelihood. You know, who knows how much they could make off a really good picture of them. But if it's like karen from chicago getting it on her iphone 8 like 100 yards away like 50 yards away 40 yards away whatever it is like that's not going to be a good picture like yeah you want them to have a good trip but like to get that close to a grizzly mom is that picture worth it yeah i mean that's a whole nother episode on (laughs) instagram social media and it's like i mean a lot of the yellow the yosemite deaths you know, do you have that element of people wanting to get like over the rails near a waterfall and get that Instagram photo right next to the falls and then they fall in or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Delta Lake is sort of here in the Tetons. It's yeah. kind of like Instagram Lake and I, now there's I like it, hundreds of social trails because everyone wants to get out there and get the picture, you know? Yeah. I heard it called that like for the la- first time last summer, somebody asked me about it, like when I was on a trail and I was like, oh God, no. Don't call it Instagram Lake. That, sure, that's that's like a death sentence for that that spot. Then, right? No, it's interesting. I mean, 
they're great pictures to take for sure. But yeah, um, it's just you know it's just this whole nother. It's just interesting how once the camera's out, people sort of sometimes forget their common sense and they're walking over the fences to get to stand above the waterfall or they're yeah. approaching the grizzlies. You know, yeah. so on one side of it though, like for Delta Lake specifically, and it's a other other spots too. It's getting people probably to hike more than they would have before. Yeah, that's totally. some, somewhat of a silver lining. Like, right, all those, all the uh, girls from LA probably wouldn't have hiked at Delta Lake without it being an Instagram spot. For sure, yeah. Right, so that's maybe maybe a silver lining. Yeah, no, I mean, I love people getting out in the outdoors and yeah. just do it responsibly and safely. And yeah, there's that fine line of like we want people to enjoy the beautiful places in in this country, but. Like not, not when we're there, not when we're out that day and, um, respectfully and like not putting trash out there and respect the animals and all that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Just cause you know, with the grizzlies and the wildlife, you know, a lot of times they have to get put down if yeah. there's a human animal conflict or interaction or, you know, so it gets hard when the animals have to pay the price cause we haven't been responsible you know yeah wasn't there a story in here where you were like doing like you responded to a call and you were like on the trail going down and then a grizzly popped up out of nowhere or a black bear well yeah there's there's a few bears in the book but um i think i was doing a wheel litter carry out from amphitheater lake which takes you to it's on the the way to delta lake or delta lake so um so yeah we ran into a black bear there but you might also be talking about one day at old faithful right as the geyser was about to go off oh yeah that one too Um, yeah the thing i realized at yellowstone which is good for like people around here is like grizzlies can appear at any time anywhere yeah like we normally don't think that but one day 399 is walking through wilson you know yeah so Normally the bears and old faithful, they're pretty active in the spring. Mm-hmm. Then the people come and they kind of go interior. But this one day, Hey, this juvenile grizzly was right near the visitor center. Yeah. And right. When the, right when old faithful is about to go off, you know, there's like 300 Everybody's people there, there yeah. and he sprinted there. And, um, the people like went crazy and the bear went up into the tree. And, um, so again, it was like me protecting the bear more so than the people there. Yeah because they were just crowding the tree and like almost trying to climb it and whatnot. Yeah. It's insanity. Yeah. But that's what makes it fun. Yeah. Did you, I don't think you, I don't, I can't remember any like, any stories you had in the book that were like in, uh, in Yellowstone specifically, but like really far away from the road or anything. What was like the far, what's like the farthest, I guess in any of your career, that you had to go into the wilderness to get somebody. I think it was probably the last call in the book, uh, last call in the Yosemite section where I, you know, just went up a few miles up the mist trail towards like Vernal Falls, Nevada Falls. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that, you know, part of it, it's awesome being a paramedic, but a lot of times it's like, Hey, you're the medic. You stay on the ambulance. Oh yeah. That's that line where like search and rescue takes over kind of. Yeah, so it's sort of like a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because, like, hey, I love, you know, to be a paramedic and treat people with the highest level of care. But 
then it's also kind of like kind of like hey well we need you on the ambulance versus going into the backcountry. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't done any like short haul helicopter rescues, um, which I'd love to at some point. Um, yeah. Everyone wants those, but I've so it's probably like yeah the the one at y- Yosemite or one of the final calls in the book was a rescue up at Amphitheater Lake here in mm-hmm. the Tetons. Mm-hmm where this guy fell 50, 50 feet. And oh, yeah, and he was, like, surprisingly lucid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when, you, um, when I read that, I'd, like, I'd like reread the part where you said how far he fell, and then, like, he was, like, talking to you guys, and I'm like, what in the world is he made of? Right, for sure. Yeah, you never know. I mean, one injury, one, like, mechanism someone walks away with, and then the next, you know, could be just here in Jackson. I mean, our sidewalks are, like, crazy in the winter. There's sheer ice, and... Mm-hmm. Someone can fall and it's a life-ending head injury, you yeah. know, on Pearl Street versus this guy who like falls slash slides 50 feet in in the scree and you know Amphitheater Lake and he's fine or a broken leg, you know. Yeah. So you never wow. really know. Yeah. <clears throat> Definitely. Um, well, yeah, we're on uh, an hour and 24 minutes. Is there anything else you'd like to get out about? Uh, the book or your career or any, anything else like that? I think we covered it all, but uh, yeah, I've had an awesome time today and yeah, thank you. Drank some good uh, snake river beer. Yeah. I don't know what it's named. I don't even know if they have a name for this, but um, if anybody from snake river, Elliot, if you're listening, Elliot's my main, he's the marketing guy there. Um, you should get a name for this and release this shit. This is so good. It's awesome. I would drink like the thing I've said about, um, a lot of IPAs, but I can't, I, I don't like, I don't love drinking them like all day long. Like I got to mix in other types cause they get a little, you know, strong and the bitterness sure. kind of takes over right. me. But like to mix in that little bit of that really good bitter flavor that you kind of get with Paco's with like the juiciness to make it a little bit more drinkable. God, I freaking love this. I would drink this all day. Yeah. It's amazing. We need to name it. We do. I Should think, name you it? know, if you want to name it, you've got, uh, that could be a good name. The Wild Wild Rescue Juicy Logger. There you go. There it is. Elliot, I'm going to text you right when we start stop recording. We got a name for you. Take it on your next adventure, your next river trip, next time you're surfing the snake. Definitely all hiking, those things. Hiking the Grand. Definitely. Um, and uh, so we're at this up. So tell the people where, you said it already, but where to find your book, the title of it, um, to find you, find your website, like anything that the people can find you on. Sure. Well, again, my name is Kevin Grange. Uh, I'm on Instagram at kevin.m.grange. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook, obviously. And uh, yeah, the book, would love to have you guys read it. Um, you can buy it locally, supporting your local bookstore, Valley Books or Jackson Hole Book Trader. Or it's also on Amazon. And uh yeah, I'm full time at Jackson Hole Fire Department, so stop by the station, say hello. Don't be one don't be somebody he has to go to a call for. Yes. Um, just come in on your own on two legs, walking in to say hi. Exactly. Um but yeah, above all, like I I one thing I haven't mentioned is I think people don't know like what a great EMS system we have here mm-hmm. as far as or just medical system as far as like Teton County Search and Rescue. Those guys are amazing. Yeah. Jenny Lake Rangers, Grand Teton, Jacksonville Fire. Um, our medical directors like Will Smith and Dr. A.J. Wheeler, mm-hmm. St. John's. 
Um, St. John's, labor and delivery, OB unit, shout out. Yeah, so I think we normalize it because it's all we've ever known, but it's very unique. And like nothing like this exists throughout the country. Like Dr. Wheeler and Dr. Smith, they'll show up on calls. They'll helicopter in, they'll ski in. So I don't know any other medical directors who do that. Um, So I just want to give a shout out to the local first responder community. Definitely, yeah, shout out to them. Do you think it's because um, of the combination that we have? Would would you call it that wilderness-urban... Yeah, wildland urban interface. Yeah, that plus a big ski resort plus four million tourists plus um, two two really large national parks where extreme shit happens plus an actual like like a decent sized small town hospital. I kind of all throwing all those things into one valley probably makes some funky stuff happen. Yeah, but I guess. People can be like assured that no matter where you get injured here, you're getting the highest level of care. Yes, whether certainly. it's searching, search and rescue responding to you, or the Jenny Lakers, or Jacksonville Fire. Yeah, um, which is pretty rare because, you know, in some places, the more rural and remote you get, the level of care drops. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, here in Jackson, you know, like St. John's, L and D, the ER. Yeah, you get just like top providers who want to live in a great place. Definitely. So we're all super fortunate. Yes, 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 definitely. Well, Kevin, thanks again for coming out. Um, Thank you. Everybody go find Wild Rescues at everywhere he just said, Amazon, your local bookstore, whatever. Um, it's a really great book. Even if you don't think that you will would enjoy reading these medical stories, you will. The way he writes it is super digestible. It's not anything above anybody's head. Um, and if you've been to any of these national parks, any of these places – it it is really interesting to to kind of see the the environment that he's doing these calls in because it's 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 extreme. Um, oh, something I didn't know. I wanted to ask you before we end. What's this picture of? Did is that like a call you were on, or is that like where this picture, the cover picture? That come from? is a helicopter rescue in Yosemite. Okay. Um, so it's a great picture. It yeah, perfectly it was, describes what's going on. I wasn't on that call specifically. I don't think, although I'm not quite sure when it was taken, but. Yeah, that's uh, a short haul rescue that they're doing. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, thank you again for sending it. Uh, I I don't know if you saw this, but I oh nice I yeah a note right up here sweet and Kevin so Kevin signed the book for me wrote a little note a little note over there um, great guy great book everyone go check it out thanks a lot yeah thanks for having me on it's been super fun yeah definitely thanks everyone have a good day.